Hello out there. How's everybody holding up? My family and I are safe and healthy, and I hope you and yours are the same. This whole shutdown happened so fast. In the space of four days, from March 12th to 15th, the entire North American ski industry went from full-on, midwinter, deep-based skiing to almost a complete standstill. As obvious as it seems now that this is what had to happen, nothing is that simple. Remember, these big mountain operators employ hundreds or thousands of people in their communities. They are at any given time hosting thousands or even tens of thousands of people who've traveled in some cases from around the world to get there. These are people who have taken vacation time and they've invested money and they have entrusted the mountain to be a central part of their life experience. You don't just pull the rug out from underneath all that without thinking deeply about it. You're talking about big, immediate choices with impossible to predict consequences that can echo for a very long time. So I wanted to talk to one of the big players that had to make that very tough call. If you've listened to the Storm Skiing Podcast, you've probably heard the Stephen Kircher episode. It's the most downloaded one since I launched the podcast back in October. And you can understand why. This is a guy who has lived his entire life in this industry. The sense of stewardship he feels for Boyne Resorts, which his father started back in the 1940s, is enormous. And I knew this could not have been an easy decision for him. So I reached out to Stephen and said, hey, I know we didn't talk that long ago and your GMs have been very generous with their time, but I'd love to get you back to talk about how you handled the shutdown and what this all means. Gracious as always, he said yes. So here we are. Let's do it. Stephen Kircher is the president and CEO of Boyne Resorts, which owns nine ski resorts in the United States and Canada, including Big Sky, which is the second largest ski area in the U.S. His family has owned and managed Boyne Resorts for more than 70 years. Stephen, thank you for your time today. You're welcome, Stuart. Good to be back on. So I want to ask, first of all, how are you and your family holding up? What is your current situation? Are you guys safe and well? Well, like every other Michigander, I guess we are all at home working um, if we can with our families, whoever came home. And, and I'm in that situation. Actually, been 17 days of it right now. So uh, we're we're safe. No one's ill or, or any issues. We've been sequestered here, if you will, and uh, engaging in conversations across the company and the world. And it, it seems, you know, somewhat normal right now. I mean, I'm getting used to it, I guess. I'll put it that way. So that's pretty much in line with the official orders in Michigan, isn't that right? Correct, yeah. Um, we have had that in, in for over a week, I think. And then uh, we were um, over in Europe in the Alps, so we came back and we, we had the 14-day uh, self-isolation program that you do when you come back in. So that coupled with our, our governor's uh, constraints, is we're, we're parked here at home. And uh, like I said, it's, it's the new normal. Yeah, I've been talking to my parents who are down in the Midland area near where I grew up, and they're just staying put, going out once in a while for groceries. And apparently, certain places will bring them right out to your car. So doing their best to just stay out of the way. Absolutely. Yep, and let our healthcare workers uh, handle the stresses they're handling and not add to the problem. So we're all doing our part. So you have mountains in very distinct, far-flung communities all across the continent. What is your understanding of how those communities are doing and how your staff on the ground is doing and feeling? Well, we're talking all the time. And, and based on, again, today's conversations, uh, you know, generally pretty, pretty well. Obviously, the end of the, of the season happened quickly and ferociously compared to a normal wind down. Um, obviously, I think what, you know, we're, we're proud of how the teams handled this all and proud that we were out in front of it to, to a great degree. And 
I'm also happy to say that we've got only one positive test out of 10,000 folks that work for us. So, wow. you know, that coupled with the very limited, uh, uh, I think, penetration of, of cases around our communities, that what we did was helpful. And we were obviously being proactive to try to help bend the curve because we clearly had the, you know, we'll go into maybe more details on that later, but the, the number of folks coming from different places was you know, at, at record numbers. So we were getting mm -hmm. concerned of people fleeing the cities and hot spots and coming to our areas. Mm -hmm. And that certainly played into the psychology of what happened. But our teams are doing well and they're they're healthy. Obviously, uh, their, their off-season started a little earlier than they'd like, um, but we're all hopeful that, uh, you know, we can be back at it in our summer seasons. And, and that one employee who was infected, do you know how that person is doing? I uh, got the report this morning. They're doing extremely well. Um, in their 30s, very healthy, male, um, and uh, into probably the the latter part of the infection, and actually is is doing quite well. Um, so no no need to go to the hospital, luckily. So definitely one of the better cases I've heard. We have we had our first fatality in our region here in northern Michigan. Uh, people, mm. some person we many of us knew worked for. Point Highlands in the past for 25 years, mm -hmm. so he was a a very popular person in the community. So there's a bit of a that sense of it hitting home um, in a small mm -hmm. community when you've got an actual person that everybody, many people knew. So that's um, that's happening in obviously much higher frequency in other parts of the country, but it is it's the real deal, and uh, we got to take it seriously. And it's amplified right now, too, because when this well-known person in the community passes away, we, we can't get together and grieve. Right. So it's you're not you're not able to go through this normal process that you would where people come together and remember them and honor their memory and are able to, you know, kind of gauge that impact on the community. Yeah, no question. It's just, just going to change. I guess there's a lot of social changes that we're not quite probably uh, grappling with right now. What will be different um, in the future, especially as we deal with this in a mode where it still is there, but it's not in a pandemic level, but it potentially could could spike up again. And, you know, all of us are going to be governments, businesses, et cetera, looking at how do we handle this on an ongoing basis, you know, into the next 12, 18 months or, or beyond, depending on what the scientists come up with. Right. And in the meantime, you're just kind of stuck handling it day to day. You know, Chris Diamond wrote a little bit in his book, Skiing 2020. He had what I thought was a really nice profile of Boyne. And he wrote about how your teams, how Boyne allows employees, high level employees to work remotely uh, and just connect together. Because, it, you know, when you're spread so geographically apart, you kind of just have to do that. Right. So so in a way, it seems like you were really well set up for a pivot to this kind of crisis because it, it, it's kind of lines right up with Boeing's standard operating procedure anyway, right? Well, uh, that's ironic, yeah. I mean, there are a couple things that probably, you know, made it seem somewhat not that big a change is, is, is you're right. Our senior team is scattered across North America. Nobody works in the same building. We have no large office space somewhere. So everybody's separate. So to the extent we're all communicating through our normal channels, there's no, been no change in protocol. We've increased our frequency of of team meetings, but all the protocols that were in place are still in place. Our systems that support communication, because we're a hospitality company, we've got a lot of PBXs that support large, huge uh, number of conference call capabilities. So we, we've had those capabilities for a long time. So those protocols are still in place. We're not, you know, converting all to Zoom because 
nobody, you know, was able to connect before. So it's it's kind of I hate I hate to say there's some sense of business as usual at on the communication level, although the frequency has been compressed and every day, especially mid month in, in March, seemed like a month or longer. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Some hours went by that I thought were weeks as as fast as things were moving, but. In that context, we're we're still we've been communicating well, and uh, the team is connected, and we're doing a lot to communicate with the teams that are are off on on layoff. You know, the the folks that are not actively uh, you know on email or or engaged in communication. Um, so we're working hard uh, at making sure we connect out and engage with those folks, and make sure they've got a place to call if they need help. So I want to go back to that mid-March period in a moment. First, though, I want to talk a little bit about the communities that you operate in. Nine different resorts spread across the continent, nine different communities. In a lot of cases, these are the centerpieces of their communities, right? So a lot of businesses, a lot of restaurants, hotels, uh, the ski shops, all these things kind of rely on your mountain functioning for their own economic prosperity, right? So so as these communities shut down, there's kind of a, a domino effect of Okay, the mountain shuts down, then everything else kind of is, is affected immediately. Um, how have your different mountains been able to reach out and help their communities in these really weird, sudden circumstances? Well, there's been a, a bunch of reach outs uh, to the to local hospitals. We've donated a ton of uh, equipment and material um, to them, and, and sanitizing fluids, etc. When we when we shut down, we have been active at trying to make sure that. You know, we weren't sitting on something that could save a life or help protect somebody. All of our patrol operations, which have a, a huge amount of inventory of that stuff, um, all that was distributed to the local hospitals. We started with that right away. Obviously, we had a ton of food because we were full throttle operating in most places. So we were absolutely uh, at full inventory, although, you know, I was a weekend, so we burned through a little bit to some degree. We, we donated to our teams as well as to... Uh, other other groups that uh, helped the needy, um, any food we had that was going to spoil. So we made sure that that didn't go to waste. We're working on a goggle program, you know, distribute goggles that we have. We've got um, these charities. Several resorts have charities, and, and they're directing their funding to help the needy in those communities. Um, it's been, you know, uh, uh, lots of lots of different points of light that from that perspective, but you know most importantly, I think from our duty standpoint was to be the leader in making these decisions to wind down quickly and try to mitigate the potential problems. Obviously, the economic damage that occurred was was obviously came out of that, but you know our we put safety and the health of our staff and 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 basically convincing customers that this is the wrong thing to do. We were flooded with Mm -hmm. customers and i think most of the other resorts that i talked to were flooded from people coming out of the cities and our business levels were at all-time highs a record winter and a a record period going on with people coming to the mountains and and escaping and to some degree that was just amplifying the urgency that we had that oh my gosh look what's happening we're bringing people from all over the place to one melting pot here and we're going to have blood on our hands if, if we don't act fast because this is the wrong mm-hmm. thing to be doing and, and if, if customers can ski they'll ski they were telling right. us that they didn't care they didn't want to be safe quote unquote if you will mm-hmm. they didn't know it wasn't safe if you will i guess to interact and we were very proactive and aggressive and uh and i can talk more detail about what was going on in those hours and days leading up to it but it was uh 
to a great degree, focusing on the safety on the health and safety was was paramount. Yeah, I, I think as as the office workforce of the United States was kind of sent away to work remotely, obviously those folks are going to spread out. And it seemed like what they were doing in a lot of cases is leaving those big cities, going to their places in the, you know, their vacation homes near these ski resorts and taking advantage of the proximity to the lift. So you're saying that, w- that you were even busier than you typically would have been during that time period. Yeah, it was, I mean, the last last weekend, we started to see some people making a different decision, but leading up to that, the, the 10 to 12 days up, you know, before that, it was very busy. And you're exactly right for the very reason you're talking about. People were moving into the mountains away from their, their primary homes, because obviously many of the resort communities have second home populations. So especially the drive-to markets. Um, the fly-to markets were, you know, obviously pretty set in terms of the flow of people coming in. They didn't have a big spike per se, but but the drive to markets were seeing it. So New England, Michigan, maybe Snoqualmie, those ones? Uh, this, well, obviously each region had a different situation going on. Obviously the tip mm-hmm. of the spear was Washington State. They were at least right. two weeks ahead of the rest of the country. Washington, there was absolutely a tepidness in the market starting to happen there where people were, um, I believe they're on on much more restricted protocols already. And there was a lot of panic going on in Washington, Seattle market in early part of March. And and that also, I think, was an advantage for us because we were already experiencing what was going on there. So there was already the discussions system-wide about what does this mean? And what mm-hmm. do we need to do to address it? So to some degree, I think that prompted us to be, you know, everybody had to go through a learning curve. And obviously, our leadership in the White House took the longest of anybody to go through that learning curve. But mm-hmm. m- many of the governors, many of the businesses were realizing this was something that we needed to get aggressive at. And, uh, you know, in Washington, it was happening earlier than other places. So let's go back to that week of the big shutdown, March 9th. So people started canceling large-scale events the week before, things like the South by Southwest Festival down in Austin, Texas. On March 11th, when the NBA suspended its season, I think that's the first time that something that's very prominent for most of the population sort of was was taken away very quickly. Um, The next day, the NCAA canceled March Madness. And on that same day, Thursday, March 12th, Berkshire East and Catamount owner John Schaefer announced that his two mountains would be the first in the U.S. to shut down in direct response to COVID-19. Several smaller mountains then announced. Saturday, March 14th, Vail and Altera announced immediate closures of all their North American mountains. Powder's Mountains were shut that evening. Uh, By the next afternoon, all of Boyne's Mountains followed. I think Boyne Mountain and Highlands closed on Saturday. Take us into how you, your thinking evolved over that week and how you ultimately arrived at the decision that you had to close your mountains. Well, you almost got to go back to early February, you know, when there was additional oh, wow. protocols being put in place. Uh, there, it was a lot of cleansing, sanitization, a lot of protocols in the hotels, a lot of protocols in the F&B departments were, were already underway in late February, mid-February even. Actually, I remember being around President's Week, we were talking about protocols. And and then obviously got into early March and the um, – the messages from the state of Michigan and other places about um, large gatherings started to take place. So we started to cancel large events. The, uh, uh, you know, some, a beer festival we had in early March was canceled, I think, the weekend be- 
before we close or two weekends before and others. So we were starting to obviously try to reduce the, the amount of possible high density situations. And then we started to realize that this is getting, you know, more difficult to manage. Um, the state of Michigan then came out with their 250 or less and, and basically made all the cafeteria situations obviously an untenable situation. So we started to have to shift to outdoor cooking and, and keeping people um, limited in the buildings. That protocol was in place in Washington. We, we started to roll that out elsewhere. It, it became increasingly clear that if we're going to maintain a safe outcome here, that we're going to have to have an orderly shutdown. And I think it was late in the week, right around maybe when the NBA shut down or just after that, we started having those conversations. We had a Wednesday call that I remember being on that was saying, you know, this is probably coming, but it's maybe a couple of weeks away. Uh, I mm-hmm. think the NBA announced that day or that afternoon. And we got into Saturday. We had had meetings that morning on Saturday, basically had cemented our plan. And we said, we're going to be having an orderly shutdown in the destination resorts, the fly to destination resorts by the 22nd. And we mm-hmm. were going to shut down Michigan by Sunday the 15th um, okay. based on the, the Michigan protocols. And in Washington, I think was going to be in the same bucket as well because of what was going on out there. And, and I, I had had communication with the other big players as well as NS, NSAA leadership about what we were thinking at that time of the day on Saturday, everyone else was assuming they would be open till end of the month or into April. And mm-hmm. uh, within a few hours, and t- t- to be totally honest, I was on Geneva time at the point in time. So I went to bed at about 8.30 to catch a very early flight to get home. And mm-hmm. by the time I went to sleep and woke up the next morning, everything had changed. And our team had had to pivot from what we told everybody else we we're going to do, which is Sunday the 22nd for many resorts, and, and, and Michigan was already on track for closing. We we basically did what we were going to do in seven days and in 24 hours, as it were. Wow. Um, so everyone else was kind of thinking they were they were able to hold in there with protocols, and and when the governor of Colorado issued its its uh, his mandate, and other things happened over the course of that afternoon evening. Um, it was clear that everybody was going to have to make a quick, quick move. So it, it happened fast. It happened in a matter of hours, and it happened basically Saturday afternoon, evening, and we all had to pivot. We were trying to suggest an orderly outcome, and it became a little less orderly than we had intended. And for certainly everybody else, it was much less orderly um, because they didn't make the decision until they were, you know, late in, on that Saturday. But everyone, I can tell you, was very focused on the safety of, of guests and trying to do the right thing and, and to try to balance this, you know, how many people were in route to destinations. I know many stories, people like landed and they learned the resort's going to close the next day. So obviously you want to communicate in a thoughtful way. And we thought we needed a few days on the destinations to be able to do that. We figured some of the drive-to markets we could we could quickly make that call, and people would not be hung on a on a, a plane flight. So it was crazy, a crazy uh, weekend. It was certainly lots of conversations across our network and, and with other companies leading up to that about 
how what makes sense and what's the right thing to do and how fast you do it. But again, the priority was safety. Clearly, it would have been economically beneficial to the industry to drag it out another week or two. But the best timing for this to happen would have been three weeks later. It was significant. It could have been a lot worse if it was earlier in the year, obviously. If this was a November event, it would have been much worse for our ski industry. So I think all of us in the industry should be thankful that it happened towards the end of the season and certainly empathetic to other businesses across the economy that are just ramping up for their, you know, maybe big season, be it spring or, or summer. So we're very fortunate as an industry and certainly as a company, we feel we're very fortunate. It did all happen so fast. So, so you're saying you were, when you say 8.30, was that 8.30 U.S. time and you were, was in the middle of the night in Switzerland? Uh, it was 8.30 p.m. in Geneva. So it was about uh, 2.30 Eastern and maybe 1 o'clock Mountain Time, I think. I, I went to bed about 8.30 or 9 o'clock. I had to get up at 4.30 Geneva time, which would have been like 11 o'clock in the morning Eastern time um, to make the flight. So you could do the calculation. It was I, I was quite uh, – I was like Rip Van Winkle, I felt like. When I woke up, it was like the world had absolutely changed. And I'm proud of our team because they're already we were already heading down the path of, of the communication they just pivoted and, and changed it. So our team and, and, and uh, the team on the ground, and, and certainly I, I hats off to Vale and Altera and Powder and others for being proactive um, on it. Some of it was obviously somewhat pressured, but it, it was the right thing to do, and they all knew it was the right thing to do. And, and the attitude of everybody across the industry that I was in contact with was, was asking the right questions and trying to be you know, fill the leadership void that we had in this country at that time. Clearly, mm -hmm. there was mixed messages coming out of different, you know, levels of the federal government to the state governments, and that wasn't helping. It was confusing the situation, and, and that's something that we should all not forget in November um, is the confusion that was, you know, imparted on this nation. So in that leadership vacuum, you come together uh, with with your rivals in the industry. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I think – you know, we, we as skiers tend to think of you all as separated into these very distinct buckets, but but it's a very tight-knit industry, right? And, and you're talking to each other and, and kind of figuring out what are we going to do here? What's the move? Uh, you can't all just, it's not all just chaos, right? Well, it, I, I can't say any of us have ever dealt with this. And, and the amount of communication was unique because we had to say, like, what are you seeing? What are you dealing with? And there was you know, we don't talk all the time as, as you know, leaders. We talk periodically on key issues, and this became a key issue that, you know, we had to grapple with. And how do you, how do you close down North American skiing in a way that is balanced between the disruption it's going to cause the communities? There was a lot of comments about just that, is how much disruption and economic damage is going to occur by shutting down, you know, immediately. And certainly our, our – our proposal to, to shut down on the 22nd in, in some of the destinations was a, you know, a moderate middle ground. We still gave up three or four key weeks of the, of the season, but it gave people who are in route, you know, on a Saturday flight for a six-day vacation, um, you know, a chance to, to wind down the vacation. We were able to – we would have been able to communicate to people that hadn't already left their, their home – but it was the right thing to do in, the, in, in hindsight, and I think the numbers that we are seeing in the communities that we're doing business in and our team members show that the aggressive 
being aggressive was the right call. And clearly, as the nation gets more aggressive and has been getting more aggressive, we're starting to see the impact, the positive impact of that. It's going to take a lot more of that and commitment. Um, you can't have Miami beaches as they were flooded with people. You can't have people, you know, at bars and restaurants and states that don't have a big issue because it's going to just continue to, you know, expand it because I, I think what, three weeks ago, the state of Michigan had nine cases and now it's got 1,700 or 2,000 heading to maybe 30,000. So the the effort, though, that I think the state governments and the local governments and others are going to have a, a real impact on bending the curve. The data is showing that. So we, we've talked before, and I know you feel a tremendous sense of stewardship to carry on your father's and your family legacy. After all, Boyne is still a family-owned business. When you had to make this call to shut down all of your mountains in the middle of winter with thousands, if not more, guests at your mountain, some of which you would travel a very long way to get there. Um, did, did you think about your father at all and his legacy and how he would have handled this? You know, honestly, it, it didn't, I didn't, it didn't have time to think of it in that context. Uh, we were working as a team to come up with the best plan. As I said, the, the, the turnaround time with the team, you know, reacting to what was happening over the course of the late afternoon on Saturday the 14th accelerated a plan. Clearly, the discussion about um, how to communicate and telegraph to local restaurants, hotels, other businesses, and, and being able to not surprise them, but give them the heads up on some kind of reasonable way uh, was paramount. But I, I wasn't thinking about the legacy. We were, we were just thinking about doing the right thing for those communities. We just could not, in good conscience, have that many people coming from different places commingling we, we felt that it was a, 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 you know a hot spot in the making in hindsight you look at the ishko issues right i mean i, I was at mm-hmm. i've been there i mean many people have been to ishko it is one of the, the great apres ski places in in the world um they obviously had a hot spot amongst them at that you know in early march that wasn't being uh, heated to, and, and, and the local community reacted a little sluggishly to that news, and they were unfortunately, you know, part of the, the problem versus part of the solution. And I think in hindsight, all of us in North America got aggressive with this, were part of the solution versus being part of the problem. Um, I don't know if you know, Switzerland had announced, I think on Saturday afternoon, U.S. time, that they were shutting down for Sunday, the end of Sunday, which I relayed on the phone call uh, when we discussed the pros and cons of which resorts would shut down the 15th, which resorts would shut down the 22nd. Mm-hmm. And I think Tyrol had already also issued their orders for a, a limited number of skiers were being shut down on Sunday, I believe, of the 15th. So it was happening fast, but they were ahead of us in terms of the, the number of infections. Obviously, it in Italy was also ahead of us, and those resorts had shut down, I think, the week before. So the writing was on the wall that we, we needed to get aggressive to help, again, as I said, be part of the solution versus part of the problem. And it seemed like once a few in the United States started shutting down, it seemed kind of inevitable now that they would all follow, right? Because, it, as you say, you have more people coming into these communities. 
you have fewer and fewer mountains. Therefore, you have more and more skiers congregating at fewer and fewer mountains, which makes social distancing that much more difficult, which compounds the problem. No question. No question. And all of us were going through a learning curve, right? Everybody in this nation and the world, and, 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 and some people were just on different points in time. And it was a matter of weeks or days or maybe maybe two weeks where ultimately everybody got on the same page. And, 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 and what's great about now, obviously, we have a common message across pretty much every governmental layer and internationally what to do and, and what the best protocols are. At least there's a common message that's that's coming out. So curious how your employees are faring in this. You mentioned earlier you have 10,000 employees. Many of them are seasonal. Uh, all of them, not all of them, but all the, most of the seasonal ones are abruptly out of a job. How were you able to ease this transition for them? Well, obviously, in our industry, unlike many other industries, we're used to going into the off-season. And, and most of these folks that, that are um, part-time have part-time employment. Obviously, it was shorter for some of them than they had that hoped or we expected. So those folks obviously went on unemployment. They worked through their their week shifts and the weekly shifts, and, and then went on unemployment insurance. We obviously had some viewpoint into what was happening federally too, hoping that that would come through, and, and it has. And that's going to help certainly soften the economic impact uh, between the gap between their hourly rate and what they would have. Uh, they're generating on, on, on normal state unemployment insurance. Our, our full-time staff, which is not used to being laid off, um, we're all told that they could continue to use uh, PTO, paid time off if they'd like, or have an option to go on employment if they preferred. But we've made a real soft approach with that group that typically doesn't have the seasonal implications like our, our part-time folks. It's been, it's been a challenge, certainly, having folks uh, shorten their, their winter by two or three, four weeks in some cases. Yeah, you mentioned the aid available to individuals in the congressional relief bill that was passed last week, $2 trillion. I believe it adds up to $600 on top of their normal unemployment benefit. Um, it, have you had a chance as Boyne Resorts to dig into that bill to see what aid or assistance you may be eligible for? We have. We're, we're early stage still, but uh, you know, obviously, it's geared towards the individual. It's geared towards small businesses, which we're not one of. Um, mm -hmm. It is certainly helping to make an off season for most people who who got regular unemployment insurance rates now get a a, a significantly higher amount per per week. So. To some degree, our folks are going to benefit from this. I mean, we pay a lot of money into the employment systems for, you know, the opportunity to have these off-season layoffs, which, again, is part of our seasonality of a business. But to some degree, these folks are probably better off than they are in most off-seasons when it all shakes out. So I feel really good about that, and I'm glad that that's the case because, obviously, people are – living paycheck to paycheck in many respects, and they don't have clarity on what the summer brings. If they've got a job with somebody else in the summer in the tourism industry, that, that's somewhat questionable right now. Obviously, our summer business is probably going to start a little later than it normally did in the past. So, you know, having to be able to bridge that gap between now and, and the next startup to the season is is certainly important. And our full-time folks, again, are are either on PTO and they're getting their normal income or they're they're taking the optional employment benefits. And 
the hope is that things will get back to normal by May and, and they'll be continue on like they have for many years in the past. And we'll start to crank up summer business sometime in May. So from a company point of view, there's already talk of a fourth round of stimulus, another round of stimulus. And after the one that they just passed on Friday, what would be helpful to a company of your size that's not a small business? It's also not a publicly traded company, uh, seasonal business, but but an important one in the communities in which it operates. What kind of things would you be looking for out of that kind of future stimulus? Well, I think one thing that is glaringly obvious in this is that all business interruption insurance, commonly known as BI, has pandemic exclusion. So every business mm. in North America, at least in the U.S., has an exclusion. So we're all paying money for business interruption, and we just had the mother of all interruptions, and we don't have coverage. Wow. And why is that? Well, obviously because it's such a big number, the insurance companies don't want to take that risk on, and they've been able to avoid it. So I think there is a foundational change that we have to look at. And it's not a blaming the insurance company. It's a collaborative approach between business, insurance companies, and the, and the government because we need to pay into a fund that pays for pandemic BI insurance. The insurance companies need to make sure they don't blackball us from having it. And the federal government needs to realize that these insurance companies may need to be backstopped because the dollar amounts might be so large that it would take down our large insurance companies. So it, mm -hmm. it, it's also an international issue. It may not just be a, a North American issue because these insurance companies generally work across the oceans. And uh, I think there needs to be a collaborative approach to solve this because if I was investing as a banker in businesses or thinking about doing loans and you're thinking about this risk going forward, how do you underwrite to this risk now, now that we realize been, you know, since 1918, since we had something like this, this is now the reality, and we need to change how we underwrite business interruption insurance and allow for it to be funded and paid for and part of the the, the ethos of, of certainly North American business, because it, it has to be fixed, in my mind, for, for a business to be able to function. Otherwise, people are going to have so much cash on hand, they'll never be able to invest in another asset, and we're going to have a really sluggish growth. Uh, profile, where you're not going to be able to raise funds because of the risk profile. I, I, it's foundationally a problem, and, and I haven't seen much talked about it. And I've been writing senators and other folks talking about this is a, a foundational issue that, you know, isn't for this week, but it's for this spring, summer, fall, next year. We need to solve this. It's foundational to, to North American business. Yeah, not only retroactively, but there's no one knows yet what's going to happen, right? So there's talk that this may not be stamped out by the fall, that this may disrupt next season. These these sorts of long-term disruptions, I think you're saying, is, is something that we need to consider when we consider how the insurance industry uh, constructs these things and offers these products. Well, whether it's short or long-term or reoccurring, right? I mean, this could, this could go away. It could crop back up for a month. It could crop back up regionally. Um, you know, in five years from now, we can have another virus that comes through the, you know, the world or, or 50 years from now. The point is, it's a glaring gap in all of our insurance. And everybody went immediately to their insurance policies and opened up their books and, 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 and go, oh, my gosh, we're not covered with a pandemic. I don't think we never talked about it. Nobody that I know talked about it until they realized they're in the middle of a pandemic and they went and checked their policy and they realized they're not covered. That's that's wow. like a shocker for a lot of people, and, and and that's something that again, that's it's unfortunate that we're all caught 
flat-footed, but that's the fairest way of allocating capital. If the government's going to be involved, why wouldn't it be involved as a backstop to our large insurance carriers? You can have stop-loss insurance. We fund and we pay into a fund. We being business, we pay both the government through taxes as well as insurance premiums for BI that covers us in these situations. If it's an every 50-year event or 100-year event, that's why you buy insurance is so you can withstand these shocks that are unusual. Um, and this one, unfortunately, has caught everybody um, in, a, in, a, in a vulnerable state, and I think it's, it's clearly a, an opportunity. So, so what is the sort of thing, Stephen, that, that those uh, business interruption policies would normally guard against? Well, what, we, we've had fires, for example. If you have a fire, mm-hmm. let's say you have a, a restaurant and you have a fire. Well, mm-hmm. the, the, the BI part, not the, the property part, property replaces all the fixtures and furniture that you lost in your kitchen equipment. But to the extent mm-hmm. you're, you're down for six months while you're repairing this stuff, you, you lost six months of profit, not not revenue but your profit your net profit and and mm-hmm. typically there's a number there that you know if you were closed this is what you would have lost compared to being closed and they will pay you that amount of money so you're made whole um as a business so you can continue on that's what i'm talking about is that gap and and for us you know we're we're about 22 million in, in top line revenue short probably in this winter season from where we would have been and we're going to try to save, obviously, costs to, to reduce that, that number. But to the extent that that ends up being, say, $10 million, that's what BI would normally cover. If, if, if this was a fire-related or an earthquake-related or a tsunami-related, all those things, we would have, mm-hmm. we'd have gotten $10 million. But in this case, we get zero. So that's, that's so, what I'm so, articulating. So have you had to use those policies before, Aboyne? Absolutely. We've used them on, unfortunately, we've had three fires in the last five or six years. And uh, we're, we're, we're unfortunately well briefed in, in uh, BI for fire-related incidences. And, uh, you know, it, it's available and it's part of the ethos of any, any normal insurance that one would get. But exclusion for pandemics is a glaring gap. It's sort of like the pump house fire that I discussed with Dana Bullen. Uh, Sunday River GM when he was on the show, that sort of thing. Yeah, but that didn't cause a BI event, right? We didn't have a mm-hmm. business interruption because of it. We had a property loss. If it had happened in January or let's say mid-December and it caused us to not be able to make snow and not be able to open up and we would have had to show a gap between this number of skier visits and this kind of revenue and this is the profit we lost, we would have, have had a BI claim. And it would have kicked in. It would have paid the difference between the two. This is different, um, obviously, because it's system-wide. It's not a one-off event. But BI only kicks in when you can identify specific business outcomes that are deviations from your normal. So that $20 million number, is that an actual number? Or is that just, uh, are you just throwing that out as a hypothetical? Uh, that, that's our estimate. And we've told uh, our bond investors that's our estimate. And that's currently our our, our best guess. It's a minimum of that because that that's assuming that summer businesses would you know open up under normal circumstances. That's our our winter oriented revenue drop shortfall um, in the in the month of late March and April basically. So now you're in the situation where you have this big 
hit of profits that would have come at the end of the season, which from my understanding is a pretty profitable period because you've paid a lot of your bills at that point, it seems like. Um, you have a, you've announced a lot of capital products, projects. A lot of them are coming up. You have the Swift Current six-pack replacing a high-speed quad at Big Sky. This summer, you have a new eight-pack lift going in to replace the Kank 4 at Loon. Do you think that those projects are still on track, or is it just too soon to say how those might play out over the next few months? Every capital project right now, I mean, I don't know if you know what the situation is in most of the states. We can't be constructing um, in Michigan, and, and, and certainly everybody is home in New Hampshire and Montana. Uh, there's stop work orders pretty much everywhere. We're evaluating our entire capital plan, and you know we just don't know at this time how long this is going to go. Are we going to have a summer or are we not going to have a summer? Are we going to have any season pass sales or aren't we, are we not? You know, we've extended deadlines. We're probably going to continue to extend deadlines. We, we don't know what kind of revenue is going to come in, and we're, we're making sure that we're in this for the long haul. So many projects, be it hotel renovations, lift projects, renovations on uh, restaurants or, or cap, any kind of capital at all is being relooked at and basically put on pause until we see some more clarity. So the longer lead time items like lift certainly are going to be under the most scrutiny and the most pressure because if we can't if we we can't tear a lift out with the possibility of not being able to put it back in for next winter. If we had a, mm-hmm. a work stoppage for 45 days like we have right now in the middle of summer because the pandemic was, you know, reignited, that would be a seriously problematic situation. So we're we're evaluating all all of the projects including those and um Many might get postponed to 2021, and we're going to continue to focus on our planning processes for the uh, 10-year plans. And things move a year; it's not the end of the world from our perspective, but it's right. unfortunately part of part of what we're all grappling with. So, meanwhile, the shelter-in-place recommendations from the government have been extended out to April 30th. The only mountain of yours that I've officially seen closed is Boyne Highlands. Is it safe to say the rest are done for the season, or are you not ready to call that yet? We're we're not officially ready to call it. I, I think for the most part, everything is going to be you know not reopened, you know, based on what we're seeing. But there there's an opportunity probably in in certain parts of the country to to have a late late season opening, depending on how the snowpack holds up. Um, we'll, we'll continue to we're optimistic and hopeful, and we're skiers, so we would love to turn the wheels and and, and call a victory somehow somewhere um, in the Boy Network. But at this point, it's you know, certainly if I was betting in Vegas, I would bet against that happening. Well, I've seen, I've seen May skiing at Boyne Mountain, Sugarloaf and Sunday River. I'm not sure. I'm not as familiar with your Western mountains and what the culture is out there around late season closings. Are, do any of those tend to go past April? Brighton or Snoqualmie or Cypress? Well, Brighton and Big Sky both have, uh, you know, potential for late season. They, they both have a uh, very high you know, high elevation or, or northerly locations. Uh, the Alpental has stayed open well into May at, at some years. Um, oh, really? So, you know, we're, we're, you know, again, optimistic, but at the same time, realistic. So we're, 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 we're not calling it yet, but it's certainly uh, more than likely. So in most states, there's not anyone on the mountains doing any sort of maintenance, right? Because you have those stay at home orders. Yeah. And that's our protocol internally. We're, Okay. For the most part, you know, you're, if you're not essential, you know, some kind of just protecting the assets and stuff, they're 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 working from home. We just do not want to have somebody, you know, 
adding to the potential numbers. We, don't, we can just stamp this out and do our part. And, uh, again, I'm proud how the team reacted early and forcefully in this, and, uh, and as well as the industry in general. I think we've, we all stepped up. Well, Stephen, I, uh, I really I can't thank you enough for your time today. I, we went way over, uh, but this, this, is, uh, this is really amazing insight into what was going on as all of us were refreshing our social media feeds at home, trying to figure out what the heck was going to happen. It's, it's really cool to see the behind the scenes and um, understand how everyone was kind of working together to figure out what's the best way to do this thing. Well, thank you, Stuart. I hope it's as interesting to everybody else as it to you and I, but um, it was certainly a very fascinating time and, and, and one that uh, none of us will forget anytime soon, without a doubt. Well, I hope you come through it relatively unscathed, uh, both your company and, and you know, on a personal level. I hope you and your family stay well, stay safe there in Michigan, and hopefully this, like you said, everyone can just stay in place and we'll just burn right through this and, and get back to it. Exactly. Get back to it. You bet. Well, thank you. That's Stephen Kircher, president and CEO of Boyne Resorts. Imagine being the one who had to make that call. The speed with which all that went down and kept changing is remarkable. You heard him. He went to bed in one world on Saturday and woke up in a completely different world on Sunday. That's a terrific account of what was going through his mind and what was going through the minds of the collective industry as things evolved the week of the big shutdown. Thank you, Stephen, very much for that. And thank you all so much for listening. I do have more COVID-focused podcasts lined up. I'm going to keep at this for a little bit yet. I don't know for how long, but there should be more coming your way over the next couple of days. To hear those as soon as they are live, please subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com. That is free. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.